You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Flavius, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners why we're talking today. My name is Flavius. I grew up in North Carolina, small town, and after going to school for economics and technology, I met a friend who's a pharmacist and dove right into the world of pharmacy. This was back in 2011 in outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. We thought the two of us would embark on the journey to transform the world of pharmacy through technology. And we were young and naive, and we walked into Amina Abubakar's pharmacy. If you know her, she's an awesome pharmacy owner and lived right down the road from where I lived. Is that right? Yeah. And so I walk in, and I'm like, look, look at all these ideas, and we could do this on an iPad, and we could do this on it would be amazing, and you guys don't need to use these technologies, and told her all of our ideas of how to change pharmacy. And then she said, look, 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 no, no, no. Here's what you need to do. Like, all you're saying is not real. Here's what's real. And learn about some of the challenges in, in pharmacy with, with PBMs that are that exist to this day. And uh, that became the spark that started iMedicare, which is a company now known as Amplicare, which we scaled to, I think, over 10,000 independent pharmacies use that platform today to help independent pharmacies, to help seniors save money on prescriptions, usually by finding better Medicare plans that better cover their prescriptions. So that's what we did. We we're very fortunate to grow that um, over a decade and eventually sold it and really saw that the issues that we we're trying to solve 10 years ago still persist. You know, these <laughs> PBS didn't go away. If anything, they gotten stronger. And while we helped uh, give some weapons to the pharmacy to fight against them. The war, the war hadn't changed, and, and honestly, our side is kind of losing, and that's just not that's not okay. And so, uh, we we thought we got to do something. You know, we're in a position to to still make a difference, and so we saw how a lot of the big chains like CVS, right, bought Aetna, as you know, uh, Express Scripts and Cigna merged you know walgreens is partnered with united walmart with humana and our people right the twenty-one thousand dependents they have nobody and that's not okay that's not fair in fact they do a better job in the chain and yet everybody's trying to switch every patient and send them to mail order and drop ship 90-day supplies on their doorstep and that's not that's not what we believe healthcare should be for for our own you know citizens so that's we started troy to be the plan for the little guy, just like CVS has that. Not Troy is for the independents. Why'd you sell iMedicare? Was it the right time? Yeah. So, what um, this is the first time talking about this. <laughs> so I, I hope I don't get in trouble with uh, the co-founder with the investors. If you say something here, you'd be sure to tell me right now, or even if you think of it tonight, or if you listen to the recording, if you want to beforehand, be sure to let me know. I want to make sure you're real comfortable. Look, man, we're transparency is our core value, so that's that's what we're about. Applicare had grown, had kind of matured. Under your control, was it always still iMedicare or had it switched to the Applicare name? Yeah, it had been switched. So we tried to expand beyond doing just Medicare plan comparisons. 
And so the name iMedicare was kind of a lot pigeonholing us into that thing. I gotcha. Okay. So we launched AmpliCare, launched a few more products, honestly, to compete with prescribed wellness and some of the other uh, software tools out there. Okay. And we got some new, a couple of new board members. And I think after you know, a couple of years, uh, I, I've always been obsessed with the Medicare side of things mm-hmm. with, again, like what we talked about before. I just didn't feel right that we were helping independents, yet all these chains had their plan. And so we helped compare plans, but the options were getting fewer and worse and worse. Yeah. And so it's just honestly, this has been on my mind since we started on Medicare. And we've, I've always kind of been like, hey, let's let's build a plan. Is it fair to say you got rid of iMedicare because you wanted to do some other stuff? Yeah, I wanted to start a plan. And look, I love my co-founder, Matt, and, and he very intelligently said, look, we can't build a plan within this company. Like, this is a totally different thing that requires different capital, different risk, different everything. The iMedicare is right. really supposed to be non-biased. Neutral. Neutral. Right. So you couldn't start one while you still had your fingers in that. Exactly. So that's, uh, you know, I just had a hard to hard with him and said, look, man, I'm just so obsessed by this thing that I can't live another day without trying. So in 2018, um, I stepped away from the business. He became, you know, CEO and ran it and, and did a great job. I stayed on the board, but really since 2018, and we only sold in 2020, right? So two years, I was out of the business before, uh, before. So it, the selling decision was really more of a, um, at that point, I was already out of the business. So when they came with a with an offer, you know, Matt and I and the board looked. This is this is this a good deal or not? And it became more like um, uh, a decision on, hey, I on the one hand needed the funds because Troy required so much capital to get off the ground that we were like we were like the plane was getting really close to, <laughs> to the ground and we needed a little jet fuel. Right. So I was I was all in favor for like man, I need this money to to make sure I, uh, Detroit stays alive. So I, I voted for it and I think Matt felt it was a good outcome for, for him too. So that's that's why we sold. If your idea was not into Troy or getting on the other side of things, would you still be there now, do you think? Were you enjoying that enough or was it getting time to move anyway away from there? It's hard to know, you know, obviously I had this obsession, but you're saying if I didn't. If you didn't. Um, probably, I think I think so. Though I do think all companies tend to have a little life cycle, just like people. You know, we, we grow up, we get old, and then eventually we die. For sure. And I think businesses are the same way. You can only keep a business and that, that passion, you know, like burning the midnight oil. I mean, the early days, I was working 21-hour days for, sure. for years. Yeah. So eventually, eventually I do think... You run a little out of steam. Although once a business mature, definitely requires less of you. So I, I definitely think I yeah. probably could have, you know, still a bit around, but it wouldn't have been something that I put twenty hour days into. You know, your background, your formal background, you've got business studies. But do you have computer in your background? I saw you had a Ruby on Rails certificate and so on. Do you have official computer in your background too? Yes. Yeah, so. After college, I did a master's in computer science, and uh, in Charlotte, I actually helped run the Python meetup. Python is a programming language that is popular now. It wasn't so popular back in 2010, but yeah, um, it was like only five cavemen that came out every month to eat some pizza and, and cook. Yeah. <laughs> 
so and, and crazy story you know i was running this thing and uh actually guy i met was kind of sponsoring because i didn't have money for the pizza so this guy was giving us money for the pizza and one day we, we didn't have a location so it's like i just messaged the group hey we don't have a location today let's just meet in a in a coffee shop down the street which i was yeah. just gonna go there expecting really nobody to show up honestly i was just gonna chill there for a bit and this guy comes out of nowhere and, and literally at a ta- at my table, there's like 20 tables there. And he comes to me and he's like, is this the Python meetup? <laughs> and I'm like, who are you, man? <laughs> like, how did you find me? And he's like, oh, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Matt Johnson. You know, I'm a, I'm, a pharma- I'm a pharmacy school down the road and I'm really passionate about Python and I'm working on this project and I want to get your feedback. And I'm like, man, this is not somebody you meet every day right <laughs> you know a pharmacist right. that's a programmer that's like really into it so that's how i met matt and and that's how I eventually end up getting together and starting uh i met again when you and matt then met amina were you searching her out she just happened to be the closest pharmacy to where i lived in like this that a roommate was living in this you know half of a townhouse i remember because she had just joined pds and was telling us you should you should go to pds and we're like man the fee is like three grand there's no way we can go <laughs> to pds was that because of iMedicare that her name came to be in more prominence no i don't think it's because i met i think it's just because she should of who she is she yeah exactly who she is um in fact, she didn't even sign up for the program until years after. A lot of the, a lot of the early adopters were really skeptical of, of the two of us doing anything useful in the foreseeable future. A plan like that, iMedicare, it's kind of like as pharmacists started realizing over the years how terrible the PBMs were, it's kind of like you guys are like a firing squad and you're saying, which bullet would you like? I mean, all of the options started to not be real good, right? It's true. It's true. They're getting worse. Would any of this have happened without your love of computers? Was that part of the answer that you said, I have some answers, but I can bring those answers out with computerized something. Was that a big part of it? That skill you had? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's a tendency to want to hack things. You know, like when you're a little little uh, hacker to try to yeah. piece something together. And so I think that's what attracted me to technology in the first place. Gotcha. And and then I was working on different tech stuff. And, you know, this is early days, social network stuff. And you're working on, you know, photo apps and these things that are all, you know, cool, but they don't really change the world. You know, it didn't feel like I was really making the difference. And as I learned, as I met Matt and I learned more about pharmacy, he actually learned more about technology. I learned more about pharmacy and it just struck me like there's this massive unfair system built that that I became obsessed with kind of hacking to figure out, like, why is it that did you have these little guys doing a great job here and these big guys just just beating them up every day, and it just didn't feel uh, fair. And so that's, I think, underlying it all, you know, it's just that feeling of hacking it. So the underlying skill was the hacking, and then it didn't hurt that when you had some answers, you could probably categorize it and think, how could I do this program-wise and so on? Exactly, exactly, you got it. On this program, I always talk about how much partners suck, but I can see that you and Matt definitely were a symbiotic relationship for your business. And so now when you pulled out of that, would you consider yourself that you had any partners when you started Troy? Or was that really your, you were the sole 
person on that versus having a partner when you had Matt? I'm a strong believer you need you need a partner because it's it's so lonely doing this by yourself that you got to have a person to to live the highs and the lows with. Oh, that's interesting. And so um, when we started, honestly, I wasn't, despite being obsessed with the idea for a decade and telling everybody about it, I'm sure people know from conferences hearing me talk about starting a plan, I never actually did it. You know, because, mm. and it took um, Josh, who, funny enough, is uh, also a pharmacist down the street in Concord. Josh is your partner in Troy. I got gotcha. you. He was one of the pharmacists that worked at uh, Cannon Pharmacy in, in uh, Concord. Funny story, when I, I went to high school at Cannon School, literally like the same uh, family name behind both. And so Josh came at a pharmacist conference and said, well, why don't you do it, man, you know? I was like, well, you need $50 million in capital. You know, where am I going to get that from? You know, I don't have, you know, they might, I mean, we have more than I did when I started at Medicare, which is like negative 200000 in debt, but not yeah. quite, not quite uh, enough to start a plan. And so he said, you know what, look, I have my total savings right now is a million dollars. And I'm going to put, if you quit Amp and start Troy, I'm going to put the, everything I got. I'm going to put a million dollars in Troy. And, and we'll start with that and go from there. Wow. So it's like, man, if this guy's willing to, to risk it all and go full-fledged, I can't, you know, I've been telling everybody that this is the dream and what I should do. I couldn't live with myself being like, man, am I going to live, am I going to do this or not? And so that kind of pushed it over the edge. And, and, and so Josh and I were both crazy enough to just go at it and, uh, and, and start with, with that initial investment and then added. 170 investors after that, which are pharmacy owners themselves, including Amina and Joe Moose wow. and, and many others. When did most of them come on? So that first round, we had to raise $10 million just to get an insurance license in North Carolina. So that was the crazy thing because we had nothing. You're really just betting on me and Josh in a PowerPoint. Right? So it's not, it's a very risky time to invest. What year was that? 2018. That was just in 2018. So in 2018, you know, we well, one by one, it took a, a crazy amount of effort. In fact, it was uh, right the week I got married that we, we ended up, you know, two minutes before the clock struck, five o'clock, <laughs> the Department of Insurance would have pulled our license if we didn't have the money. And, wow. and it just got over the edge and, uh, and we met that and were able to launch a plan. So it was a crazy story. When you say insurance, what does that mean that much money? Yeah, so... Let's step back a bit. So Medicare, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know when you turn 65 or you're on a disability, you go on Medicare. And Medicare, a lot of folks don't know this because they think it's a government program, but the government then turns around and, and, and gives that money to, to a contractor, really, um, to administer it. And so Medicare Part D are plans that administer it just for drugs. We decided to do a Medicare Advantage plan, which doesn't just cover drugs, but we also cover hospital, outpatient, inpatient, hmm. home care, really any healthcare cost that Medicare would cover, plus more. We have supplement, we have dental, vision, hearing. Hmm. We offer transportation to doctors' offices and back for seniors. So we're a full plan. And the reason, by the way, we went that route. Just as a quick note is. If we're gonna sh if we're gonna prove that pharmacy impacts healthcare, it can't just be drugs. Do you know what I mean? Drugs are a part of health. You can't separate the two. 
And so by having the full pie, we're able to pay pharmacies fairly on the drug side and then leverage the savings from the health side that they drive by keeping patients out of the hospital. Mm. And that's how we're able to build a model that works by paying pharmacies for what they do. To be a government contractor, you have to go through this year-long application process that has a gajillion checkboxes to check. But the first one is, are you licensed as a health insurance company? Gotcha. Licensing in the United States is done at the state level. So even though you have a federal contract over here that you got to get, you need the state licensure by the each state's Department of Insurance to, to bless you and say, yes, you can insure residents of our state. And because think about it, if uh, their, their concern is that if we go out of business and we don't pay claims, then uh, those seniors are going to you know, be out of luck. That they're right. potentially on the hook for the amount. So they, their job is to make sure that we're a solid enough company financially that their seniors are protected gotcha. and will always be you know, paid claims for. So that's why they won the $10 million. Is that why you guys start more as the hub you go out from there? That's why you're starting solidly in North Carolina? No, we started in North Carolina because, honestly, we had to start somewhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I haven't grown up there. I had a lot of connections, right? Amina's there. Joe Moose is there. My partner, Josh's pharmacies are there. Yeah. So we thought, heck, this is going to be easy. If we start there, we already have the pharmacies. They're already going to, you know, the patient enrollments are going to be good. I already knew a couple of the people on the board of hospitals to get the hospital relationships. And we knew some lobbyists that could get the insurance license. So it's like, perfect place to start. Little do we know, North Carolina is actually one of the hardest places to start a health uh, insurance company. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, because there's a very concentrated provider systems. There's a few big systems oh. that have a very high concentration. And also, they're not like too excited or, you know, we're too small to even move a needle yeah. on their radar. My daughter lives in North Carolina. And it reminds me of Grand Rapids because like our hospital is like with the PBM. It's like, it all seems to be like the Grand Rapids mafia. And I'm sure you probably run into that down there then with your certain hospitals and all that stuff all combined. Yes. As you know, it's, it's similar to the pharmacy world. And then there's some economic dynamics, the conflicts of interest yeah. and, you know, health insurances right. hate the hospitals. Hospitals hate the health insurance companies. They're not, neither of them are evil. Yeah. But they're working in the system that is messed up. Right, you know? for sure. Um, anyway, so it's very hard to get off the ground because we were nobody. So to us to show up and say, hey, sign a contract with us. They're like, you don't even have any members. You hardly even have a license, right? We're about to, we just barely got that at the last second. Was it a ton of money just for the licensing fee? Or did you have to have so much like in assets or something? Right. It's not a fee. So that that money, you they just want... Uh, to to have it locked up in a checking account with zero risk. Kind of like an escrow kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. So that no matter, even if there's a there's a pandemic yes. and every one of our patients gets <laughs> right. it, we'll be able to pay claims. If there's a pandemic every thousand years, you know. <laughs> they're going to be ready for that. Right now, they're wondering, hey, do you have enough cash in the bank yeah. to be liquid? And what are the chances that you go under? And it's 0% because we right. have to have enough cash so that that's not even a worry. Yeah. Otherwise, they pull our license and we're, we're, we're not a business anymore, right? So this is very uh, this is very important from the state legislature. You have to have a ton of money just sitting there. 
If you're an existing insurance company, these barriers to entry, you got to love this because it means that for to start a health plan, you need tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, well, of how many people have that? So Hell yeah. it's, it's, it makes it so hard. You know, when we first signed up in North Carolina, they didn't even know. We didn't know. They hadn't done this before. Nobody's done this before. So, they can, you know, finding the application was a challenge because there hadn't been an insurance license or HMO started in North Carolina since Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know? so For sure. It's, it's just crazy. For sure. Here's the power of pharmacy. We were going to start in the area where I mentioned to you, right? Amina, Joe Moose, Josh had their pharmacy. But unfortunately, yeah. despite knowing Godin to church growing up with two board members of the hospital, there's one person there that decides the contracts, Joan Thomas, and she wouldn't, she, she wouldn't sign the contract no matter what we did. One state person? Uh, no, the hospital. The hospital person. Oh, oh, the hospital to go with you. Gotcha. Because one of the checkboxes to start a health plan is making sure uh, patients can go to every specialty. There's, there's requirements mm. on time and distance away from each resident's home that you have to have 48 specialties available to them, of which the most important one is a hospital. Wow, especially being the Medicare Advantage, right? You said you wanted to have all those, so now you got to have them. Exactly. And we were able to fill all of them except for one um, uh, open heart surgery, which only this hospital does. And so without them... She wouldn't sign off on it. We, she wouldn't sign off. So we were about to again die. Or this is like a moment, a step away from death. No um, kidding. But here's here's where pharmacy comes through. I have, I had one one pharmacist friend I knew, Joe Williams, who who uh, hadn't even invested in the plan, by the way, yet. He ended up investing a little later. I know Joe. I did a show with Joe. MedSmart, Brisson Drugs. He's got, he's got like five different things. So I was telling Joe, gosh, man, you know, we're about to start this. Because he was asking, where's it coming to my area, which is about two hours outside of Charlotte. Yeah. And we said, look, man, we need a hospital. Without a hospital, this thing's going to die. And he said, oh, I'm on the foundation board of this local hospital over here. Let me, I'll put you in touch with the with with the guy at the hospital and i was like oh, okay fine let's see what that turns into and needless to say when an independent pharmacy owner makes that connection they're local they're on the board these people are yeah you know, they know each other they're friends right. so that gentleman gave me a call and said look uh joe says you guys are doing something good and we want to be a part of it what do we need to get this done it just blew my mind we went to signing a contract within weeks wow and we had a hospital in a, in a county that we didn't even foresee being in and so we were able to launch in, in Robson County, which is one of the, I think is the poorest county in North Carolina, very rural, very tough, and honestly forgotten by insurance. The competition there is, is, is small because these plants, they don't even care to go in those communities to, to try to compete. So we launched there, and uh, now we just crossed, this last week we crossed 1,000 members on Troy, and we just surpassed Humana and market share in that county. We have almost 20% of market share. We're bigger than Humana in Robinson County. And that's a, that's a huge, huge accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. When I think of Medicare, I think of government funded. And then I think of poor areas maybe having even more funding. So it seems to me, and uh, I ain't no genius, and everybody will get in line to tell you that. No, but it seems that... You'd almost do better in a poor area where maybe people are served more with Medicare. Is that not the case, even though it's a government kind of funded thing? You could do better if you do a good job of managing costs, you know, uh, admission, readmissions into a hospital. 
Oh, because you guys are like per head kind of, right? Exactly. We get paid from the federal government every month. Risk on a, each, each member has a risk uh, number, like a 1, 1. 1.1, 1. 1.2. Gotcha. And so if a member has a higher risk score, we get paid a little more because they tend to be sicker. If uh, they they're, have fewer chronic conditions or they're very healthy, they're 65 years old, you know, uh, then it might be a 0.5 risk score. So we get paid uh, more or less depending on the projected risk score. Now, if that person ends up going to hospital 10 times, obviously we might spend 10 times what we got paid for that patient's risk score. So our job is, to, and therefore really our pharmacy's job, is we empower them to try to keep them out of the hospital, to try to keep them healthy, and that's how we're able to survive in, as a business. I see. And part of the risk, either it's not or not necessarily have to do with economic impact. In other words, a poorer person is not a higher risk just because they're poor, is that right? The thing that matters the most is the diagnosis codes from the year before. Mm. So if they were at a hospital, the PCP, they coded them for diabetes with retinopathy or, or, or cardiovascular disease, those would uh, increase their risk score for the next year. Mm. And then there is age as a factor, I think even gender, I want to say, but then also uh, Medicaid status. So if they mm. are uh, on Medicaid as well, which we are... Um, uh, a dual eligible plan. So we're mm. serve Medicare and Medicaid members. So if um, if they are lower income, that does add a little bit to that to that list risk score as well. I've seen it at the pharmacy where there's some people that because of maybe their economic challenges, they might make decisions that are not financially always the best decision. They might go to the emergency room at the hospital more often than doing something that would maybe be in most cases maybe a a better financial choice if it was coming out of their own pocket. And so where you might get a higher percentage, it's not going to offset somebody who, for whatever the reason, whether it's their call or not, is because of their economic situation, their costs might be skyrocketed and you're going to get some percentage, but not enough to cover all of that. Oh, absolutely. You're right. That's that's where... The government, the reason we exist as an industry is because the government said, those people you're talking about, they threw their hands up and said, you know what, I, I don't know what we could do about it. Why don't we give it to these companies and they'll compete with each other and maybe they'll figure out something to drive down those costs. And certainly a lot of them are trying to do it by putting PCPs on and, and putting more on their plate to do more, do more PCP. And the PCPs gotcha. are like, oh my God, I got like a, a panel of 4,000 seniors here. How right. much can I do with them? We're the first that says, you know what? Why don't we give it to the pharmacy? What if the pharmacy can oh, have that conversation gotcha. and keep that member out of the hospital? Now it's all coming together for me here. So <laughs> no, no, it's good. all of this is working. All of this is based on the amount per person and then pharmacists of all the values that pharmacists bring, if we can bring the most value and number wise, you can show that pharmacists upfront used in their best way are going to keep prices down and allow Troy to be profitable. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's, that's what we're, sh and we've already shown it. That's cool. Last year we, we shown that for the patients that receive an e-care plan, as you know, e-care plan through CPSN, for the patients that got an e-care plan within 30 days of being discharged, 
we saw 43% fewer readmissions. So the chances that they end up in the hospital is 43% less than the people who never got any touch point within, from the pharmacy within 30 days. Wow. That's really cool, uh, this, whole, this whole setup. This is enlightening to me because I see it. I've been around pharmacy forever, and you see these words and stuff and Medicare and Medicare plans and all that kind of stuff, and I'm sitting down here now. It's fascinating to really think about that and what the pharmacist can do. It really is. I, you know, I hope more, more folks do this, honestly. I think there's room for 10 or 20 more of Troy Medicare's. <laughs> the problem with pharmacy has always been where pharmacists would save money, but they wouldn't get remunerated for that. And then maybe the healthcare plan would, but it wasn't helping pharmacy at all. But with your guys' thing, what was I reading, Flavio, that there was incentives for the pharmacists to be doing this too, right? What are some of those incentives that the pharmacy, that an independent pharmacy would say, ah, this is cool? There's three. Right, so number one, Troy's the first plan to put them in the preferred network and leave all the chains out as non-preferred. Mm. So what that means is if you fill a statin on Troy or Lisinopril, if you go to Mike's Pharmacy, it's $0. But if you go to CVS, it's $10. We're the first plan to do that, which is honestly just their own medicine, <laughs> you know, back to them. That's what yeah. they've been doing for a decade. Why is it allowable to have uh, preferred in Medicare? It just is? Yeah, you know, the Medicare forces all pharmacies to any willing provider to participate. Mm. So while in a private plan, like a commercial plan, uh, PBMs could just kick you out of it and, and force everybody to go to CVS. Right. The federal government said, no, 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 you can't kick Mike out, man. This, you can't make a senior drive three hours to go to CVS. They got to be able to go wherever they want. And so that's when uh, the brilliant minds behind PBN said, well, what if we have a preferred and non-preferred network? Gotcha, the tiers. Well, they can go to both, but the copay will be different. And so they, they snuck that one past CMS. If chains can show that they bring the same values independence, I'd say, you know what? Leave them be in a preferred network. But if they... If they don't, you know, as long as the experience at Walmart is it is what it is, and, and experience of buying is what it is, they're not doing e-care plans. They're not doing free delivery. Only with the pandemic, they were forced to do free delivery, right? Okay, so that was one. That was one. The different copay levels. Exactly. Two. We pay pharmacies thirty dollars per member per month for care management to take clinical actions. They keep Troy out of members out of the hospital. That e care plan. So whenever they complete an e care plan, we pay them thirty dollars. Which thirty dollars might not sound like much, but over the course of a year, that's three hundred and sixty dollars. And then, say you have a hundred patients on Troy, which we have pharmacies with two hundred plus. That's uh, thirty six thousand dollars a year. You know, two hundred is what's that? Seventy two thousand dollars a year. That's starting to be you know real money. Which by right. the way. These pharmacies are already doing this, so they're really getting paid for things that they're, they're already doing, right? Exactly, right. So that's two. And then three, we're the first Medicare plan to have transparent drug pricing. What does that mean? So all of our pricing is based off of NADAC, which is a publicly available pricing. A lot of state Medicaids are starting to use it because they're tired of getting uh, tricked by PBMs. 
So they're using NADAC, which is published every week on the Medicaid website. And we, so that way, uh, patients know what they're going to pay. Pharmacy knows exactly what they're going to get paid is NADAC plus $10 for generics and $4 for brands. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the difference. If you fill lisinopril on Aetna, you might get, you know, 50 cents, 30 cents. If you mm-hmm. get, if you fill lisinopril on Troy, say the NADAC is 30 cents plus a $10 dispensing fee for your work, for what you do. So now it's $10.30 for a generic. Um, again, we're trying to incentivize generics, not brands, which is a huge difference between other PBMs who would rather... Uh, Pharmacies fill brands because they make more money on rebates than they do on generics. That's ridiculous. What a broken system. Yeah. So that's that. And, and look, as you know, for an independent pharmacy owner to have that transparency, they know there's no DIR. So when I mentioned NADAC plus 10, that's it. It's not NADAC plus 10 minus 4.5% if you achieve a three star rating between December 31st and June 2nd. You know, it's, it's not that. Yeah. It's just straightforward. Pricing for drugs plus care management for actual value. I imagine back in the day when they talked about DIRs and those kind of things, star rating, that was probably to say, it, 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 I don't even care to know much about it anymore because I know it sucks, And but I think it was kind of to get certain levels of care and stuff from the pharmacy. Playing devil's advocate, what if a pharmacy says, sure, we're an independent pharmacy, we'll sign up. We're going to take advantage of Troy by being independent, but we're not going to give good service and we're not going to do this and do that. Does the e-care plan sort of do enough to protect Troy to say, no, anybody that does one of these e-care plans has to at least have done enough to make some impact? Does that guarantee something or not necessarily even? Because somebody could just fill in the blanks for that pretty much or go through the motions? You're right. Uh, so that could happen. Or like you're saying is a better example. They might just not do anything. And I won't lie to you. There are pharmacies like that, to be honest with you, today in our in our network. They could fill and get the higher filling costs, but not even do any of the care plans. And they would still take advantage of being independent. They could. And they are some. I'm trying to find ways to be sneaky. So when you come to Michigan. No, this is, so this is why I love capitalism, because <laughs> because you're right. People can do that. And that's that's their incentive. But what's going to happen is that some of those pharmacies are starting to have 100, 200 members on on to uh, Troy. Hmm. And so there's the, the economic incentives are starting to look at like, here's one example that actually we just saw the other day. We had a pharmacy that that honestly didn't even participate in trade. They're doing some other lucrative thing I won't go into. And, and they're like, you know what, we don't need Troy, we're fine. We're, we're doing great as it is, we don't care about your plan, we're not gonna do any of this. And they literally had zero patients on Detroit, and they're an independent, I know the guy. And um, here's what happened. They happened to have one that somehow ended up on Troy through the whole thing. And one of the things we do, as a benefit to patients, we give them a $1,100 a year in an OTC card. I saw that. So this is a debit card, the MasterCard that they can swipe for health items only, at their independent pharmacy, or honestly, they could do it online on Amazon too, but we try to like push them to, to do it at the local pharmacy. Sure. And so it just, one day, this person walks in with their debit card and says, hey, I have uh, this debit card, can I buy some stuff? And, and they're like, look, and I kid you not, the next year, next moment we know, the pharmacy owner, the pharmacy owner calls us like, 
dude, I just had a patient over here with that Troy debit card and they bought out my whole front end. Like I literally, you know, cause they only have like one or two of these things and they bought literally everything they had to buy off the shelf. And it just clicked in that pharmacy's mind that, holy shit, this is, this, this could be a really good thing for the pharmacy because if I have all these members buying health items with their OTC card, I'm going to make more of a profit in the front end. Yeah. And now they're getting more engaged. They're getting more folks on Troy, right? So now they're really involved. And I think for each pharmacy is going to be something different when the moment clicks like, wait a second, this is good for us. It's good for them. I'm making more money. They're healthier. It's better for the system. So I think if you line up those incentives with enough education and time, eventually folks will fall in and do it. I agree. And there's enough pharmacists. I mean, pharmacists have been screwed so much that even if you told the pharmacist, if you said, all right, we're going to pay you, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but even if you did, if you said, we're going to pay you X and you can either spend 10 minutes per prescription in your mind, bitching about how bad PBMs are and all these plans to like blow up their headquarters and all this kind of stuff. You can either think of that or you can spend 10 minutes physically talking to the person and doing this and doing this and whatever and we're going to pay you at least for that time and so on. I mean, you can make this thing kind of break even almost for a pharmacist and if they said, oh, you mean I get to spend time in a positive, at least doing something that feels good, even if I don't get paid for it, versus thinking about exactly. how I'm getting screwed. Both of those take 10 minutes. Pharmacists would give up a lot. And well, you see it right now with the pharmacists working their ass off with these vaccinations. I mean, they're working their tails off, but they're happy about it because it takes the focus off getting screwed for the last 10 years. You're right. There might be independent pharmacies that maybe they're close to retiring and they don't do it even with the incentives. But that's why independents work, right? Because if if one won't do it, you or Amina or Joe Williams is going to buy them out. Hmm. And another independent will start and say, wait a second, I can make 30 bucks PM, PM times this and this guy's doing none of it. I could expand this business EBITDA by $200,000 overnight. Wait a second, it's worth buying this pharmacy problem, right? And so economics, when you're not dealing with a monopoly and entrenched interest, I think it'll work itself out where the people who actually do this stuff will be the ones that are the future of independent pharmacy. Right. What's OPM 56 mean? (laughs) It's a Harvard program for uh, for executives to go under. So I did did, uh, one year of that. To try to sharpen my business school business experience. What's that stand for? OPM is that just the name of the course? Owners and Presidents Management. I would say. Was that online? No, it was in person. Right before a year before the pandemic. Oh, it was in person to to Harvard. Yeah. You had to live there for a year. Yeah, well, part time. It was. Um, I think I lived probably there a total of a month, month and a half. So uh, it's kind of on and off because you got to understand this is a program for folks that already either are executives or own a business oh they know that you're already busy and stuff a lot of the coursework but really really put into very little time so it's it's quite overwhelming actually and humbling (laughs) a guy like you it's not terribly important for you to have this kind of information behind your name so i'm thinking that this was very valuable to you 
Would that be a fair statement? I mean, it's not like you were trying to use this on your resume to say that you had this Harvard course. You must have really have thought there was a ton of value in it. I could have done a better job in the way I you know, ran Amplicare, and I, I'm taking a lot of those lessons into Troy, and now Troy is is already surpassed Amplicare in terms of size. And it's a different business, of course, but uh, but the skills that it'll take to to take this, you know we're not building this to sell it to Aetna, you know in in a couple of months right we're building this to truly replace Aetna. and for that to happen my skills need to grow with the company to a level where we can legitimately become a public company right and and i've never gone through that process so i got to learn from the people that have and and try to do my best to shepherd this company in, on the right path Knowing what you know now with all the schools that have gone online and stuff, would you still have done it in person? Was that cool just to be there and do that in person? Oh, yeah. The biggest value of the program, you know, even though the coursework's amazing, the teachers are out of this world, but by far the biggest value is really the other the other students, so to speak. They were all like business owners in, in right. 100 countries around the world, so not just in the U.S. Yeah. So learning from the way they do things there, way things, I mean, you're talking people with like massive businesses um, in other countries. So learning how those people think and, and those relationships really is probably the most, most valuable part. And you can only do that in person. Uh, so, in fact, that's why I haven't uh, completed it. So I'm still in the middle of it because I, I didn't want to do it online. Most of my class didn't want to do it online, so it's kind of been on pause until until probably this fall is when uh, they'll do it again in person and I'll continue. They have people coming from other countries for like a month or whatever living at Harvard doing that. Exactly. And yeah, you're in these little pods. But yeah, these people uh, come from, you know, Australia and from Indonesia and, you know, China and all over the world. So and, and they're all in this one building together. How long did you think about doing that? A couple of years. Really? It's a, very expensive. And, <laughs> and B, it took, a, yeah, it took a, a friend of mine did it, and he was just really, really raving about it. And that, wow. that, that made me pull the trigger. What's your ethnic heritage? I'm originally from Romania. Romania. I grew up in Romania. I played tennis, actually, every day since I was five years old until the age of 14 when I moved to Concord, North Carolina. And continue playing tennis there. So that was, yeah. I came through. Um, What's well, have you heard of Rotary International? Yeah. So my uh, dad in Romania was a part of Rotary, and uh, this woman named Susan Smith was in Rotary International. So uh, they came visited us, and and through this exchange program is how through a Rotary International program is how I got to move to Concord. Was tennis part of that? You were like on a tennis exchange or something? It was supposed to be. Funny story is uh, is Susan was a Rotarian. Yeah. She's married to Bob Smith. So Bob and Susan Smith, they have no kids, no knowledge of tennis. So they found this family who, who did and had a kid who plays tennis and were uh, willing to do an exchange type program. And so that person agreed. And I was on my way on, on July 4th, 2001. And uh, at the last minute, the person called and said, you know what, it's not, it's not going to work for us. We can't do it anymore. But Susan, you know, they had arranged this whole thing. Kid from Romania is already on the way. So, so, so they, which now they're like my second pair of parents. They're just, in fact, I want to see them tomorrow for dinner. Really? And they hosted me. Are you a tennis pro? So I played tennis, you know, high school, stayed with them. That turned into college. After college, I, 
I tried to play tennis professionally for a year and and I, I got to be like 1300 or so in the world which is which is uh, also known as the stage where you spend all your money and uh, have nothing to show for it. So after a year of that, you know, I said, you know what, tennis is is not for me. And I'm, I'm like I'm like pretty good, but I'm not as good as it takes to make it in professional tennis. In my city, people talk about oh, so and so is really good at baseball, you know, or so and so is really good at swimming, you know, or something like that. And they never quite get there some make it up there but as far as like the top of the top things are so competitive i I have buddies yeah they were 200 in the world 150 and and couldn't make it and now they're you know teaching pros in you know various clubs yeah only maybe 40 or 50 people that make it out of i don't know how many tens of thousands are trying every year i suppose business is like that too sometimes because you think that i don't know it's kind of like you ever watch american idol yeah the reason those people can get out there is because music is subjective. There might be some people that think they can sing, but it'd be like me going out to play basketball against Shaq or something like that. It's just objectively, it's just not going to happen, you know, but there's certain things like singing, but I think business is like that too. There's some business people that think that they've got skills and maybe they think there's more luck involved or something, but think about the real good business people in the top 10. Think about them being like in the top 10 of tennis and just think how good they have to be and i think it's gotta be their their bliss doing it you know it's gotta be something that you do with such passion and ease that you don't even think about it like 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 work right you know and for me i mean tennis for me was really hard work i would get off the court and be like let's have a beer let's relax a bit meantime the other guy would go you know, running with weights around their ankles for two hours, you know, and so you could just tell that they had a level of passion for it that I just didn't. Whereas what I do now, honestly, I do this, I do this every day without having to because I'm so passionate about taking out United and Edna that I will, I'll work in, in as long as it takes to put those guys out of business. And I think it's the same with basketball. You know, you see Steph Curry, he was like, right. my size, right? Your size. But yet he's so passionate, does it so, and he's got talent. But I think it takes that passion to, to really do it. Let's say that it wasn't pharmacy, but you still had your skills of business and computer and things like that. Let's say it wasn't pharmacy. Do you think you could have latched on to something with as much passion just because you like the hacking of things? Or do you think there was something special about pharmacy i mean could we be sitting here talking about car parts or something if your friends were in the car business maybe i think i think you're right it's it's i think a part of it is how you how you were raised how i was raised was like bob and susan for instance who took a chance on me being a you know just a kid and and giving without expecting anything in return and some of those acts of generosity set me on a path where i knew what I had to do had to had to help somebody had to have some meaning of beyond myself and so could it be car parts maybe you could have done that in car parts but it's maybe one more segment removed like you could say I'm gonna do this with cars so that people can enjoy family vacations well that's true but it's maybe one more stretch of saying i'm gonna make sure that my heart is healthy so i can enjoy being with my kids or something that might be just a closer an easier way to see the good that you're doing absolutely i think like i'll tell you before i started before i met matt and um and started i medicare 
I already had quit my my job. I worked for the uh, University of North Carolina, Charlotte in IT, and I said, you know what, I got to do something more meaningful than this. So I had start. I quit my job without having a, a real plan, and I the first business I tried to start was called Eval Me, and and it was a you know Survey Monkey. Yeah. So this is early days, and so I thought, you know, I'm gonna build a survey tool that you know how you get these surveys after you like rent a car, Hertz sends you a survey like, hey Mike, what'd you think of the rental? Right. So my idea was that that when they send that survey, you say, because you're going to throw that away. You're not going to fulfill that survey. So instead, yeah. you say, well, Mike, if you complete the survey, we're going to donate a dollar to charity, and you get to choose your favorite charity that Hertz will donate to. Mm. And so that was my idea, and I built the whole thing, and, and I went to all these big companies. Well, I got the charities on board. They were, they were real great. Yeah. But getting to the companies, they're like, wait, so I sent a survey for 10,000 people. I got to donate $10,000? like, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> Like, no way we're doing that. So, so eventually it died. But it gives you an idea. Of like I, That's what I wanted to do. And it felt good because I knew through that technology platform I would be at least helping in some way. You know, you were always probably doing good for ultimately something, but you needed a closer connection. For sure. And, and I just feel like this is, this is one where you see you can't you can not be passionate about it. You know what I mean? You see these guys being... Uh, obliterated by by the forces of a few companies it's just not just not right it sounds to me like you've always been an entrepreneur or someone that wanted to build that when did you realize that you were going to be having your own companies well yeah i think my dad's entrepreneur he had a a restaurant in uh in a hotel in romania yeah so i worked around the business every all the time you know and cleaning up and do whatever's needed and then in the U.S., when I went to college, I started, you know, web hosting, right? So in these early days, you have a website, you had to find a place to host it. Right. And I, when I'd gone to college at Davidson College, one of the things I did, and actually I went to college when I was 17, so I wasn't quite 18 yet, but I started this, this web hosting company hmm. that was actually using the, the servers at the college for the hosting. So, really? so when you would buy the, the website, I got I got in trouble for this because you would buy the hosting, but it was actually hosted on the on the school servers, and you were borrowing it. <laughs> and 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 then also I was seventeen, and I you know one of the things was like oh we offer customer support, but you know it's just me, and I would be a class or something. Yeah. So they couldn't reach the number, wouldn't go to me. So eventually they tracked me down. And the, you know, these customers tracked me down and found Bob and Susan, actually. And they called them. They're like, hey, what's this website? You know, where I, mean, I need some support for this, this hosting company. So it all eventually had to shut down. But it just got to give you an idea. You know what? That's just that's just the kind of thing that uh, I'm into, you know. Try to try to start some way of, of, yeah, of starting a business. Was part of that saying you didn't want an hourly wage? Hmm. It's always like this is fun. This is fun, or is it like, hey, if I don't do this, I'm gonna have to work. <laughs> no, I think it's a financial thing. You know, I think it's always, um, uh, yeah. I think it's a financial and, and and freedom thing. You know, when I quit my job in the eval freedom the eval me charity thing, as you could tell, that definitely wasn't paying the bills. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I was. I was freelancing, being a programmer, which you still get paid, you know, hourly or per project right. as a freelancer. But I remember feeling that freedom of, you know what, I could work at three in the morning or I could not work at all today or, or I could work all day if I want to. But 
having the the freedom was really something that I think entrepreneur gives you, right? I think yes. a lot of jobs try to lock you into nine to five. You're here every day. Less than now, it's interesting how that's changing. Yeah, really quickly. That lack of freedom to me probably was the biggest constraint in having a job, you know. Uh, and, and even to this day, Troy actually doesn't have any mandatory kind of hours or office. We do have an office, yeah. but nobody really goes to it, even yeah. before the pandemic. We're a fully remote company. Wow. And I just think that having that freedom will get you employees that um, that they know how to self-manage, they treasure it. They, right. You know what I mean? That they don't need like a lot of instructions or, or uh, confinement to do their job. But One of my daughters just, uh, well, she got a job and now she doesn't have that job already because it was some marketing. She was marketing for a guy that did SEO for home repair, something like that. Anyway. It was, it was from home, and the guy had on his computer um, something, one of those that tells you how many screens you've had up and how much action has been on your screen oh, and all that. He's like, yeah. you're only 60, you're supposed to be 85. She's like, I quit. <laughs> she said part of, the, oh. part of the benefit of being from home was that, hey, you know, this is not her words, this is my words, but I get to screw off a little bit. <laughs> you know, not screw off, have some freedom. Have some freedom to go to this website yeah, or do that's this. that's how people work. That's how you work. Like I, you know, sometimes the best idea might come, you know, while you're walking your dog or in the shower. You know, we're not machines here. We're, anything that is that easy to automate should already be automated by a computer already. Yeah. Right? So if you need a human to do a job, you need somebody to, to think creatively. Yeah, right. And that can come in one minute in a day or, you know what I mean? It can come at night. All different times. All different times. Speaking of which, your website says AI-driven. What do you mean by that with Troy? So here's what is really exciting about, about what we're building is, sure, we're empowering pharmacies and we're growing this and it's going to put Aetna out of business. But I think even more beyond that, being a health insurer, we are able to have more data than any other party in the healthcare spectrum. Think about it. Mm. We get data from pharmacies about claims. We get data from hospitals. Every time somebody goes into a hospital, we get labs data about blood tests patient got. We even get data, just last week we started getting continuous glucose monitoring. So I get blood sugar level data from oh. our members. We, get, we have smart scales and blood pressure monitors. So we get real time uh, scales, you know, weight data for our CHF patients. And so, you combine all these data sources, which again, nobody across healthcare has. So our job is to first, okay, ingest it, make sense of it, and then feedback uh, insights to point of care. So I could tell a pharmacy, even simple things, we're the first to tell a pharmacy that one of your patients got into the hospital. This in the hospital right now. Nobody's mm. ever, has anyone ever told you that before? Has any health plan no. ever said like, hey Mike, no. Mrs. Smith, who you see every week, she's in the hospital now. Maybe we don't need to fill yeah. that medication for her. Maybe we should check in with her when she gets out. That's the simple kind of data, but now we're starting to say, you know what? Based on all of these biometrics, we actually start forecasting that that Mrs. Smith needs, maybe needs needs a cane. Maybe, you know, she's on certain opioids. Yeah. Um, we actually filled the, we notify the pharmacy to fill an Narcan, fill the Narcan for the person, and then the next week, her daughter found her on the floor, was able to use the Narcan and wow. saved her life. 
and it came from a pharmacist's action. So our job as a plan isn't to be a plan. Honestly, we're just another middleman. And our, our ultimate job is to extract ourselves from that being middleman. Our job is to provide you with the data and the insights so you can be a rock star pharmacist and a rock star PCP and the patient has the data they need about which PCP to go to. So that's ultimately the job of Troy. is isn't to be, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> it's really to provide yeah. the data and insights. And that's what we refer to Troy AI. So ultimately, that's that's kind of the, the end goal, Mike. It might be a little too too idealistic, but that's I just think that's our job. I was reading uh, an article, well, it was a blip online about Apple. And he was saying that if you back up from Apple and then focus back in, Apple's going to be known as a healthcare. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's healthcare company, but if you come back in, Apple's going to be known as health. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you look at Apple in a hundred years, you're going to think Apple was health. And so just by different things, you know, the AI stuff and all the stuff we're talking about here and all the touch points it has, you know, with things. I hope so, man, because healthcare needs there all these, a lot of these devices in healthcare, you know, this, they're really crap, man. You know, like, if you look at the quality of an iPhone, right, uh, and then you yeah. look at the quality of a blood pressure cuff or a yeah. or even the the blood strip test, like that is crap, man. Like we could do with our technology today, we could do a heck of a lot better. Like I have a look, I have a CGM one right now. You see on the video, I have a I have a Freestyle Libre on me right now, and I can already tell this thing expires every six every six hours. I have to scan it, so if I sleep more than six hours, I'm missing data. It's huge. You could make a smaller form factor. So I think, I hope Apple does it, but somebody needs to actually make devices that's like an iPhone for healthcare because right now our devices are nowhere near that level of quality. Anybody who was like 100 years before me, I always think they were stupid, you know? And it's not, that's not true. I mean, there's people... I mean, what about Abe Lincoln, you know, man? <laughs> I, you know, Isaac Newton, I mean, come on, those guys. He, he invented calculus. I don't even pronounce it right sometimes, you know? But I mean, those guys were freaking geniuses, but... I always look back and think they were stupid. And people are going to look back the same way to us. I mean, they're going to think that we just didn't know what we were talking about when they've got all this cool stuff in the future. I agree. If you were an evil genius, if you were, what would be tempting to say, oh, I wish I could go back to this model. It'd be so tempting to do DIR rebates or something like this. Or in the future, what could you do that would be really damaging with the stuff you have and i'm not trying to brainwash you so you become this person what are some things that could be tempting if somebody started to have more people underneath them oh for sure like it's the reason these health plans end up as they are is not because they're evil people i think it's the natural progression of things you get bigger you know, only so much you can do. So you focus on the things that drive the most profit and you optimize for them. You're a public company, right? So if we become public, there's going to be some hedge fund shareholder. that'll be like beating us up probably over squeezing more profits out of everywhere. And in, inevitably, you know, they, they're just forced to compromise on our values. And then they come back a year later and they say, do it again, right? I mean, every year they want that race. <laughs> exactly. Every quarter. Every quarter. Yeah. So I think there's so many places we could go wrong. And I see it, you know, we have a, a PBM we use now and um, and we see how things can be improved. And we have so many vendors where we can see things can be improved. And we, each day we have to choose, hey, what are we going to focus on? We're not, we're not going to be able to change all of these today. So which ones do we pick? 
And I could see how, how as you grow bigger, you might be defeated and say, you know, let's just leave it as it is. The customer service is kind of as crappy as some of these other plans. Ours is just slightly less crappy. So it's fine. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of stop trying to really do, do the right thing because of the bar being so low in the industry. That's and, interesting. Um, I can see even as we're talking about, you know, rebates, you know, a lot of things we can't do. In our bid, the way these Medicare plans bid every year, rebates and DIR fees are lumped together and, and they help your bid be better. So when you take out DIR fees and we want to do away with rebates, they say, well, you can't, uh, you can't bid the plan. You'll be non-competitive. There's not enough dollars to, yeah. to be competitive. So it's tempting to just say, okay, well, fine, I guess we got to do it too because they're doing it. So right. We got to do it. And that's just not okay. And also, that's, you asked about a co-founder. This is why it's great to have Josh. Because Josh is, is someone who, who, when put in that position, he'll rather, you know, blow up, turn, you know, turn the table over and, and shut it all down than, than compromise on, on his values. I'm glad there's at least one honest guy in the company. <laughs> You made me an evil genius. <laughs> oh, I forgot. I forgot. This isn't you. This is the evil genius. Sorry. 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 I shouldn't have said that. That was rude of me. Yes. Yeah. Who was it? Oh, the other day we said, hey, why is Lantus so expensive? Doesn't Lantus have a generic? And uh, we asked the pharmacist, and I don't think so. I don't think there's a generic for Lantus. And Josh's like, man, I, I sort of sworn there's a generic for Lantus. I'm like, well, let's look it up. So they do some research, and sure enough, there is a generic for Lantus, but... It's on zero formularies, not one form. I'm like, man, Lance is three hundred dollars. Why? Why is there no generic? So we ask our PBM, hey, um, can we put this generic on the formulary? <laughs> and they're like, well, you're gonna lose all the Lantus rebates. And look how many Lantuses you're filling right now. And Josh is like, look, man, the only reason they're filling that Lantus is because there's no generic. Like, if there was a generic, we'd just switch them all to the generic. It's so, a joke. And they're like, well, you're gonna lose your rebates. Well, how much are rebates? Well, they're out of 300, maybe 150 bucks. Okay, well, how yeah. much is the generic? Oh, 100, generic's like, you know, 130 bucks. So you're saying, <laughs> I'm gonna get, you know, uh, $150 uh, of cost to, to something that would have been 130. So like, I literally could save money, uh, but this this whole myth of the rebates and the brand what that's a the joke. Whole thing where you just if you're not fighting it you're losing so you constantly got to be on that and even within your own company that's what I'm trying to tell you this is within our own pack of vendors that you got to yes. be watching it like a hawk or else you go back to the way everything else is you know almost every day you have to live with the expectation that everything you're doing is going to come to light and come to light quickly. You know, as far as I was just talking the show today that was out about the whole me too movement and all of the comedians now that are getting in trouble for all their rightfully. So they're things that aren't comedy, you know, off, off stage, you know, antics and things like that. And it's like that all came because of just openness, you know? And so you almost got to run everything you do with like, all right, what's the best move if everybody knows about this like tomorrow, you know, because they're going to. And so you might as well stay ahead of the curve. That's right. And it's a competitive advantage. I think because of yeah. the lack of transparency from our competitors, our transparency stands out, right? Like we published our drug. You can go to our website right now and type in Lantus or any drug and it'll show you the price, which sounds like any other 
website that has anything you can buy. <laughs> but yeah. in the in the pharmacy world. Oh yeah, right. That's like mind blowing that a plan would do that. So yeah, I think you're right. Transparency is the way to go, and it's a competitive advantage. And I hope that's my you know end goal. I think if we succeed. It'll pull the other plans along. Well, they'll have to be transparent. They'll have to pay for care management fees. They'll have to reimburse it NADAC plus 10 without the IR fees because yeah. it's just the better way to do things. What's next on the expansion? What's next to say, all right, now we're in South Carolina. How does that go then from here? That's the plan. We're expanding to 18 counties uh, next year. Your bottleneck, is that just finances? Just getting more infusion of money? It's two things, finances and hospitals, hospital relationships. That's right. Hospitals that'll partner with you. That's what I've learned in the last two and a half years, Mike. Those are the only two things that slow this business down. And it's it's regretful because I I have so many pharmacy owners that call me up and say, hey, when are you coming to Kentucky? Like just today, somebody messaged me, when are you coming to Kentucky? When are you coming to Kentucky? Yeah. And I wish I could be there this open enrollment, but it's two things. First, I need... 10 million at least to enter a state as as you see in North Carolina uh, which I'm working on to uh, to build at least uh, two more states next year and then hopefully two more and continue that growth path but then more than even capital I'll tell you because now that we've proven the mo- model capital is starting to be a little easier but those hospitals man that is a one by one relationship just because I have Duke I have Duke Health now in the network but I go to Tennessee you think Vanderbilt cares that I have Duke and no. then I would, no, they don't care. They're like, do you know anybody at Vanderbilt or do you not, right? So those relationships take take time to build. And where a pharmacy owner or somebody in your show has them, that would speed up uh, our entry into an area considerably. So that's that's what we need. What do the hospitals, why do they take so much finessing? Is it because they don't want to deal with something new or they get so much incentive to not deal with you and more with just sticking with the traditional malarkey or what? Look, you don't really get, a, you know, you have to think from their side. They're running oftentimes a 2 to $10 billion health system, yeah. right, that serves the community during a pandemic with thousands of providers, right? And so there's a lot of priorities. There's commercial contracts that pay 4X what Medicare pays. They're dealing with Medicaid change, which is pulling on them from every way and then i show up and say hey look at this innovative model with pharmacy yeah don't you want I'm like man and it's not that they don't want it's just it's like just one more thing that doesn't seem to really move the needle for them because think about it for us to they do hate united and and the plants too but for us to show the world alternative to united we have to prove that we can sign up as many people as united has right and united's got 50 percent of the market We've had zero. So the question is, do they believe that I will go into a market where United, the largest healthcare company in the world, or Aetna, yeah. has already dominated and squeezed every Medicare life out of there they could. So they believe that me and a pack of pharmacy owners are going to be able to enroll those people from United and Aetna back on Detroit. And oftentimes, I think, I think now they're slowly starting to believe because they see it in North Carolina. And they're saying, well, uh, you guys are actually doing this. But think about it. No plan has been able to do this before because, again, yeah. it's so hard to compete with these guys. They already pay all the brokers. They have all the ads. They got billions of dollars in Google and Facebook. Like, you can't compete with them. The only reason we can compete is through the pharmacy uh, channel. And I think once we prove it, 
one by one, folks will start uh, seeing that it just takes it takes a lot of work to, to show it to them. You had mentioned that that relationship is important between the pharmacies and the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Can pharmacies help out at all? Is there any way that you're letting them know, like, here's where we're trying to go? If they know now that that's the big thing, and assuming they don't have $10 million, but they might have a relationship with a hospital, can they help at all? Uh, you're absolutely right. That's what's gonna, If they have a relationship with their local hospital, where we could get in that uh, foot in the door, that is worth uh, the most. So they should just message me and we can, at this point, prioritize the state that has it. It's really important that it's a hospital that has heart surgery. Like I mentioned to you before, the way the CMS system works is they require you to have a place where a person can have open heart surgery. And there's not that many open heart surgeries that, that happen in a year. So the only hospitals that tend to have it are the, the bigger ones oh. or the academic ones. So luckily for me, the Joe Williams Connection Southeastern had uh, heart surgery that they do there, and that made the world a difference. So if your pharmacy owners have that relationship with hospitals around them, especially ones that do heart surgery, they could call me now and we can start going there. You might even keep a mini database either in your head or on paper. Say, hey, I got 10 people just messaged me and they all have a connection at ABC Hospital That's in right. Minnesota or something. So I'm gonna, we might be looking at Minnesota now or something like that. Exactly. The, the best thing they could do is if they're not already to donate to the hospital's foundation, start showing up at their, at their events and being connected to that because that, honestly, that'll help certainly with Troy. But it'll help with their own business. If you're trying to do a 340B contract with them, if you're trying to do a, a, a clinic, any sort of pharmacy program, meds to beds, all of that happens through that, you know, farm, uh, from the hospital leadership. Yeah, that's good advice. All right, Flavio, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Hey, thank you, Mike. Appreciate you having me on. Boy, the pharmacies are waiting on this, so uh, they're going to be really watching. So really cool. So thanks. We'll be in touch, and we'll be watching. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.